Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, we hand it over the mic to Jonna Kaplan, author of Connecticut Explored's spring 2019 story about Fort Trumbull in New London, Connecticut. Jonna's got a podcast of her own, and in this episode, she's joined by her Going Steady podcast co-host, Carrie Provost. Listen as they dive into the history of Fort Trumbull, a Connecticut state park that's seen a devastating Revolutionary War battle, witnessed Prohibition-era high-speed boat chases, and housed a top-secret military research facility. Today, Fort Trumbull is one of New London's must-visit attractions, part of the new Thames River Heritage Park. I'm Jonna Kaplan. And I'm Carrie Provost, and you're listening to a special episode of Going Steady. A podcast about exploring places in the land of steady habits and beyond. This time we're doing things a little differently because this is our first ever crossover episode with Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut Explored. Instead of our usual three-segment discussion of various topics, Carrie is going to interview me about the story I wrote for the spring 2019 issue of Connecticut Explored. The theme of the issue is water, and my piece is about Fort Trumbull, a historic site on the Thames River in New London. Growing up, I was very familiar with tree forts and snow forts and only recently came across a real grown-up fort in New London, just around the corner from where you live. And I found it to be this imposing block of a building, and that's about all I know of it. So could you describe Fort Trumbull for someone who's never seen it? Sure. Well, Fort Trumbull, the one that you see there today, was built between 1839 and 1852. It's part of what's called the third system of forts, which we can get into later, but essentially it was built built to uh, protect the seacoast from invaders from outside, and it ended up being used in the Civil War, as all the coastal forts in the U.S. were um, fought over by North and South. It is, as you said, very imposing. It was built in Egyptian revival style, which is rare for a fort. You do see it in other buildings in the U.S., but uh, this is the only fort built in that style. It's built of Waterford granite, and it's very, must have been somewhat frightening if you came up on it from the outside. And it is today a state park, so it's set on very lovely grounds with walking trails, and there's a fishing pier that you can walk out on, and it's right on the river. Um, So it's a very peaceful setting, uh, but on the other hand, um, it was a battlefield. So who built this? Who funded that? And what sort of threat along the coast were they worried about? Well, I guess here we can get into the uh, systems of forts because uh, there were actually have been four different fortifications on this site. Um, it's a setting on a promontory above the Thames River, so very advantageous for coastal defense. And at the time of the revolution, there was a somewhat primitive defensive structure there. And This was the first Fort Trumbull, um, named after Governor Jonathan Trumbull, the revolutionary era governor of Connecticut. And these forts tended to be built by the, the state or the local people. The revolutionary period was actually when the best known event involving 
Fort Trumbull took place, and that was Benedict Arnold's raid, including the burning of New London and the Battle of Fort Griswold or Battle of Groton Heights across the river in Groton. So the that was the first Fort Trumbull. The first system of forts came about in 1790, so shortly after independence. And this was the first time the U.S. Congress decided we really need to do something about our um, coastal defenses. They appropriated funds and they set out on this project of building a series of forts along the coast. Um, most of these forts ended up not being finished or not being built or not being funded adequately so that as the War of 1812 was approaching, our defenses were not quite up to the task. And that's when the second system of forts came about. There are still a few second system structures around, very little first system structures, and Fort Trumbull actually um, is important in that regard too, and we can get to that in a minute. But the third system, from which most forts you'll encounter in the U.S. today are from that period. And this was the um, mid-1800s, and they were anticipating some uh, attack from Europe, from outside. There's something inherent in building forts, I realized while writing this piece, that they're always sort of fighting the last war. Because if you think about it, it takes a lot of time and money to build a fort or a whole system of them. And while you are constructing it, technology in terms of weaponry is always improving faster. So by the time you're fighting a war in that fort, you have to be scrambling to keep up with that technology. Getting back to Benedict Arnold and burning New London, what do you mean by that? How much of the city was impacted and where are we seeing or do we see any influence today from that event? Quite a lot of the downtown area was burned. There's some debate as to whether Arnold intended to burn the whole city or whether the fire kind of caught on quickly and, you know, then it was too late. But one thing you'll learn if you ever um, tour a building or a historic site in New London that where you're guided around, the guide will tell you whether that building was rebuilt after being burned by Benedict Arnold or whether it was one of the few to be spared by Benedict Arnold. That's kind of like the baseline in, in all of New London um, history, it seems sometimes. And if you've ever been through New London and noticed that it looks a bit unique and a bit different from your typical, very old New England seaport town, that's why. It's because a lot of the buildings there were built after 1781, when the city was burned, and not before. So it has a bit more of an eclectic, somewhat later appearance in many places than comparable cities. You said that there was the third system that came into place around the time of the Civil War. Yeah, pre-Civil War. Um, so did that have any actual role in the Civil War, or did it just end up sitting there? Yes, it did. Um some Civil War third system forts definitely saw action, Fort Sumter being the most famous of them. Fort Trumbull at the time was used as a Union Army recruiting and training post. So it was very busy, even though it was uh, did not see any fighting. 
And after the war, was it decommissioned? After the war, immediately after it was used as a um, supply post, I believe. And then the military and the state found all kinds of uses for it. Um, this was not, it may have been somewhat obsolete from a defensive point of view, but it was used for a whole bunch of things. The Coast Guard used it as their first service academy. Actually, before it was even renamed the Coast Guard, it was the Revenue Cutter Service Academy. Um, and the Coast Guard Academy today is, is just a little bit further up the river, still in New London. But the Coast Guard also used it as a training facility for quite some time. And it was a Coast Guard base during Prohibition. So the revenue cutters would set out from there and try to apprehend the rum runners on the sound. So it was quite a um, dramatic <laughs> moment in, in Coast Guard history, I guess. Was Connecticut one of the major players during the Prohibition? I think there was a pretty good trade between Connecticut and Long Island going on with uh, with rum runners, but that's not my um, area of expertise, so I couldn't say. Besides tracking down illegal trade at the time, what else was Fort Trumbull used for post-war? Well, after World War II, it was actually a branch of the Yukon campus. The GI Bill created so many new students that Yukon had to expand. So for a while there, um, it was a college. But the main important thing that stretches into our time was that during World War I, the Navy began using it um, as a secret research center to study submarines, detecting submarines, and our own submarine communication to initially because of the threat of German U-boats. The U-boats in World War I were just destroying every ship in their path, and at the time there was no way of detecting a submerged submarine. So uh, that's how the research began there. Several government agencies were involved over the years. At one point, Columbia University was involved too, but it was always the Navy. And while the facility changed names a bunch of times, it later became known as the Sound Lab. So it was the Sound Lab at New London. And as I said, they started out researching uh, methods of detecting underwater subs. And over the years, um, you know, World War II, of course, the German threat returned. After that, it was the Cold War. And so they began getting into developing and researching sonar technology, um, submarine communications, improving American submarine capabilities. And that went on until the late 1990s. I remember going there, doesn't seem like very long ago, and there were a lot of U.S. Navy keep out type of signs around. But when that facility closed, the uh, land was given to the state um, to develop a state park. Do they have any remnants from the sound lab on display? There is a lot of signage all around the park that explains what is there and what was there. Even on the grounds, if you go to the museum, which is in the visitor center, it's a pretty large but still manageable museum. And they really get into all the technology and all the details, all the way from the revolutionary up through the sound lab. And um, they have, you know, sonar buoys and, and old computers and reconstructed old offices of where people would have worked doing this kind of top secret research. And so if you're interested in learning the details of really any of the lives of the fort, that would be the place to go. In its life as a state park, besides finding out some of that information, what can people do there? 
Well, the grounds of the state park are open year-round and free. So if you live nearby, it's just a nice place to walk. It's on the river. It's got a um, walking path that's paved that goes around the fort, kind of around the lawn. It has benches to sit. It has a fishing pier. Of course, you don't have to fish to walk out on the pier and appreciate it. You can see uh, the old batteries. At one of them, there are Civil War era cannons placed there so you can see how they would have looked. There are other historic buildings on the site, aside from the fort, there are some old um, barracks. And my personal favorite, which going back to the first system, um, the blockhouse, which is actually the only remaining first system structure in the U.S. Because what they would do is between these different forts, they would demolish the old one and build the new one on the site. Um, so most of the previous um, structures didn't survive. But the blockhouse at Fort Trumbull, it's a very small sturdy little granite building. It was used as a powder magazine. Also, um, soldiers could live in it. And it was also meant as a, a sort of last resort if the fort was breached. Uh, the troops could hide inside there, hold up, defend themselves from there. Um, the walls are very thick. They were made to withstand exploding shells. And it's just a really a reminder of a far earlier period in U.S. defenses. When would be the best time to visit? Well, this is one that I would actually recommend going in season, which is roughly May to October. But um, I would look at the website just to make sure before you go. Um, the grounds, as I said, are open year round and you can see the outside of the fort. And it's still interesting. And there's um, some signs and plaques to explain what you're seeing. But if you go during the warmer months, not only is the visitor center and museum open, which is quite interesting, but you can also go inside the fort. So they have this large gate. It's like something out of Game of Thrones and it's opened in the summer and you can go inside and really explore what it was like in there. You can climb up this spiral staircase, much like climbing up to the top of a lighthouse and go to the top of the fort, see out, get a good view of the water and also a view back down inside the fort, which just gives you kind of an interesting perspective of what it would have been like to live and train in there in the past. Earlier, I remember you saying something about Mark Twain having some connection to this fort. Yes, Mark Twain wrote a short story. It's called A Curious Experience, and it is online in full if anybody wants to search for it and read it. And it's uh, set at Fort Trumbull during the Civil War when it was a Union recruiting station. And without giving away the ending, um, it kind of gets into how the tension between North and South could really permeate people's lives, even in a Northern city that was far from the actual fighting. Hmm. So I heard something about an eminent domain case with Fort Trumbull. How's yeah, that connected? I think people might get confused because New London in general is not that well known. Um, and if people have heard of Fort Trumbull, they may have heard of it in terms of the Supreme Court case, Kilo versus New London, the or the eminent domain case. So Fort Trumbull is the name of the neighborhood where the fort and the state park are located. And it's also the neighborhood where that case happened. So I remember going to Fort Trumbull, um, the state park, and seeing those houses there when they were still standing. Um, you could see them right from the fort. They were basically across the street. Uh, they are gone now, of course, and there's nothing in their place. But to be clear, the eminent domain issue had nothing to do with the state park itself. It, it was this development had nothing to do with the development of the park. It just happened in the same neighborhood. 
What were they clearing it for? This is um, a very long story that we probably should not get into. Um, it had to do with the Roland administration and Pfizer and plans to build a hotel that never came about. Okay. Interesting. If someone were to go down to New London for a day trip, what are some other, I don't want to say attractions, but what else could somebody do after they've you know, driven for an hour across the state? Well, one thing that um, anyone who's interested in visiting Fort Trumbull should look at is the Thames River Heritage Park, which is thamesriverheritagepark.org. And this is basically a collection of historic sites that work together. It includes um, Fort Griswold in Groton, which is also really worth visiting. It's a very different kind of fort, um, but also has a museum and other historic sites. And this heritage park also includes some downtown New London sites, and they run um, a water taxi in the high season in the summer that runs on a little loop between the Groton side between uh, downtown New London and Fort Trumbull. So if you drive across the state, you can park your car at Fort Trumbull. You can look around, do everything you want there, and then get on the water taxi for a short ride to um, a bunch of other historic sites. And then once you're in downtown New London, you can really walk around and find, you know, anything else that you might want to see. If somebody is very interested in just the forts and not seeing everything else in New London, is there like a fort trail in the way that there's a wine trail or a chocolate trail? Where else should someone start looking in the area? You know, there I've never heard of a fort trail, but there really should be one. But it would be quite easy to create your own because you could really look up. Um, Wikipedia has it, I'm sure, or, you know, tons of websites would have a list of um, of historic forts in the U.S. And it would be quite easy to do through New England. Maine has a whole bunch. New Hampshire. One that I like is Fort Constitution, which is in Newcastle, just outside of Portsmouth. And that's actually a second system fort. So it has a bit of an older, almost an ancient crumbling kind of atmosphere, but in a good way. Um, That one is interesting too, because it's right next to a Coast Guard station. And when you walk to the fort from the parking lot, you're, you're walking through the Coast Guard station. So they make you walk on a painted line on the ground just so you don't stray off and end up any place you shouldn't, which is kind of an interesting experience because it feels like a, a much more active military installation than a place like Fort Trumbull, which um, there's nothing that fools you into thinking that war is a thing of the past, like going to a battlefield with a gift shop on it or something like that, because Fort Trumbull does have a gift shop. Um, And Fort Constitution does remind you that, you know, these were strategic locations and defenses. Fort Tabor in Massachusetts is nice too. Um, A longer walking trail than Fort Trumbull. And as I said, Fort Griswold is really worth seeing right here in Connecticut. And of course, there's a whole bunch of them down all the way to Florida, you know, um, you could do a whole East Coast. They're not all on the East Coast either. Um, there are a couple on the West. You know, when you think of Alcatraz, Fort Alcatraz was a third system fort. So um, they're all over. So out of curiosity, I 
didn't know you to be a military buff. So how did you come to writing about this particular topic? I was actually assigned this particular one um, by my editors at Connecticut Explored. But I, having lived in New London for a while, I had gone to Fort Trumbull many times just because it's a nice place to walk um, and a nice place to sit, you know, a nice place to take people because it looks, it has a unique look, right? Like there's nothing in Connecticut that looks quite like this. And so it's a place you can take people and they'll say, wow, I had no idea that we had this here. So I'd been there quite a few times, but I'd never actually been to the museum before they sent me there to write this story. So that was... um, a nice opportunity to sort of force me to learn some things I I wouldn't have. That said, I am interested in certain um, time periods of of military history, so it's not so outside of the realm of possibility that I would <laughs> that I wasn't completely outside of my comfort zone at all. So that seems like a good place to stop. If you're listening on the Grading the Nutmeg feed, please come over and check out Going Steady at goingsteadyct.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And we'll have a little bonus segment continuing this discussion on our own extended version of this episode. And if you are listening on the Going Steady feed, do check out the spring issue of Connecticut Explored and check them out at ctexplored.org and on social media. You can also find more Grading the Nutmeg episodes on their website and pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts. And stick around for that bonus discussion right now. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank the co-hosts of Going Steady, Carrie Provost of Real Hartford and Jonna Kaplan of The Size of Connecticut. For more information about the fort, visit ct.gov backslash deep and fortfriends.org. For more about the summer water taxi and historic attractions, go to thamesriverheritagepark.org. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. And to read Jonna's story, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history at ctexplored.org. Through May 31st, 2019, for just $20, Grading the Nutmeg listeners receive six issues for the price of four with coupon code GTNSpring19. That's two free issues added to a one-year subscription with coupon code GTNSpring19 when you subscribe by May 31st at ctexplore.org slash shop.